All right, well, let's head into the Apostles' Creed here. I think one of the things that I'm learning as I get older, and I know that's laughable for some of you in this room for me to talk about getting older. Uh, I'm 38, and you think, yeah, you're not getting older. I get it, right? But I am aging, uh, and in that process, there are things that uh, I have found that I'm just not quite prepared for. And I think that's true for all of us. There are things as we age that we don't, we feel ill-prepared for. Like, I was ill-prepared for the amount of poop that can come out of a child. Totally ill-prepared for that. Uh, Ill-prepared to have to have conversations about soffits, fascia boards, and gutters as a reality in my life. Like, who's, who thought of that stuff? Uh, I've sat with many of you in this room and at your home or in a hospital room and talked about how unprepared you are and were to deal with the fact that your body's aging. Like, what is this body doing? It just has a life to its own. It just doesn't do what I want. I have walked with many of you who have seen unbearable pain of somebody that you're unprepared for passing away in your life. I've heard from many of you about my my child, my children, my two daughters, like, hey, soak it in, Steve. Because life just, just goes by so quickly. I'm not prepared for how quickly life goes by. And one of the things that I'm working through in, in my life right now is the season where I'm coming to grips that there are people that I've grown close to who are and were instrumental in my faith journey that are changing what they believe in. I have friends that come to believe in something different than I do. They've come to believe in something different than we once believed together. And I know that I'm not the only one in this room who have experienced a grief of somebody saying that they don't love Jesus anymore. And you go through this whole thing, like, what do you do? And what do you say? And, you know, how do I love them and show them who Jesus is? But what seems to be accelerating uh, is the people in my age group leaving the faith. We have more and more people who are, are talking about this kind of trendy thing called a deconversion story. I don't know if you've read about, people talk about my deconversion from Christianity. It's walking towards something that's more palatable, more acceptable, less demanding, more personal, individualistic, me-centered, something where I get to shape truth and not something where truth shapes me. And so honestly, I'm kind of grieving this week uh, over some friends who, who have let me know that they don't believe in the same Jesus I believe in. They believe in a different version, a version that I can't read about in Scripture. And so I, in that, I, I ask why. And maybe you've asked those questions too. Why? Why is that? We all want to know that question. And certainly there are most likely many reasons for that. It certainly isn't because Jesus never existed. He did exist. It's certainly not because Christianity isn't true. And it's certainly not because faith isn't real. So I think, what has changed? Like, and I go back to this time and time again, and I probably talk about this every single week that you guys have been here, about how brokenness and the absence of a whole relationship with God has just really redefined and reshaped us. 
It is just sin has utterly destroyed things to a point where our most innate desires today are to find the things that bring us the most pleasure and the most comfort. And there's a term for that. It's called hedonism. We are all hedonistic, meaning this. We pursue what pleases us the most. It's our natural bent because of sin. And what I have found is that this world feeds off of this ferocious appetite for pleasure that we have, for selfishness. Like a lion on a stake, we have worked ourselves into a frenzy Buying and selling, promoting and creating things that will bring us more pleasure, more comfort, more ease. And we have found ourselves to be dutiful servants in all of it. And then you have this beautiful gospel of Christ that says that God saw all of your lacking, all of your brokenness, all of your wickedness, all of your selfishness. He saw the disease of sin that is ravaging our bodies, and he said, I'm going to heal that. I'm going to redeem that. I'm going to restore it. Jesus died for our sins. We are raised to new life through his resurrection, that we would live through and in Jesus by his grace and through his righteousness. We would become more like him, a closer image to Christ. All that we ever need to flourish on this earth is found in the name and the grace and the wisdom and the righteousness of Christ. But what proves difficult in this life as we age is to really be serious about killing the sin in our life. To really get a hold of our bend to please ourselves. It is why the entire message of Jesus was about denying ourselves dying to self, picking up our cross and following after him. It is, it is about a radical new attachment, a radical new devotion, so much so that Jesus uses the word that you must be born again. We must be born again. But that old devotion, that old sin habit dies hard. It dies hard. And in this country, we have bowed to the God of popularity and we have bowed to the God of applause. We have shaped the message of Jesus to be more palatable to the world, more inviting that we might have new converts, new believers, so our churches and ourselves can have better, more improved status and more applause and be more impressive. But in it, we have deceived scores of people to believe that you can have Jesus and have the world and all its pleasures as well. We have caved from the whole gospel to look more successful. We have preached a gospel that is, has a broad appeal, but has no real sustaining power in our lives. And so we're at this place where we're seeing thousands upon thousands upon tens of thousands of people walking away from the faith, a faith that never did anything for them, a faith that lived in their emotions and died when life got hard. And it wasn't accepted anymore. And so I, I see it clear as day. Like we are being humbled. Christ follower, we are being humbled today. And I don't know how long that journey is going to be. I know that there is going to be great grace amongst us, that God will never leave us. But we are being humbled 
because we are so readily being discipled by the world and not discipled by Christ. We are struggling with a desire to become true disciples of a loving, radical Savior that died for us, who died for us not that we might have Jesus as a small part of our story, but that we would be part of his story. The story that we are loved in the Son. Like, that's your story. Like, you are loved in the Son. And so, in this culture, in this environment, we have scores of people who don't really know what it means to be a Christian because we've massaged the message to be more attractive. We don't actually know what we believe, what we're to be discipled to. Our foundation in faith is that Jesus loves me, and that's certainly true. It's certainly true. But it's a love that costs something. Not a love that's not costless. It's not a love that gives me what I want. Jesus never had that in mind. And so what I want to do over the next few weeks is get really basic and foundational to what we really believe to be true in the doctrines of faith. Because if we truly know what we believe, conversely, we'll be supremely informed to know what we don't believe in. And if we know what we believe in, it should follow that we should assimilate more and more to what we hold to be true. And to do that, I'm going to walk through this, it's really an ancient document called the Apostles' Creed. And maybe you have some experience with it. When I talk about the Apostles' Creed, I want you to understand that, uh, that it's this document that was formed by the early church in 140 A.D. That's old. It's formed in 140 A.D., some 100 years after the death of Christ, about 40 years after the death of the last apostle, John. These churches got together to write these statements. Some speculate that the apostles that we read in scriptures like John and Paul actually wrote the Apostles' Creed, but there's no compelling evidence for that. The most compelling evidence is around 140 A.D., a bunch of the early church got together to write down in a form of a creed what they actually believed, to confess what they believed. This was started as a creed in baptism. And so if you were alive in 150 A.D. and you were being baptized, you would have professed the Apostles' Creed to state what you actually believe. This is what we hold true to. And over the next few centuries, the church would take things that there was division on and they would meet about it, and they would form another line in the Apostles' Creed, a, 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 a statement that would bring unity to the church. And so this is today what we see as the Apostles' Creed. Now, I will tell you that there are multiple different versions of the Apostles' Creed. There's the traditional, there's the modern, there's, yeah, multiple different. All of them say exactly, almost exactly the same thing, wording as change. So if you're used to this and you're like, the words are different. Well, it's okay. They're, they're saying the same thing. Essentially, they're saying the same thing. And so this is what it says. And I'll, I'll just read it to us. This is formed in 140 AD. I just, I just can't get my mind around that. Uh, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. 
The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty, from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Just that, that, that's not, like there was a, it was a reformation. That term Catholic means universal. It's God's universal church on earth. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the, the resurrection of the body, and, and life everlasting. Amen. And so our plan is to take the next five weeks, and honestly, it's probably going to be eight. I, I, the more I dive into this, the more I realize I can't do this in five weeks. And so we're going to come up right up to our Christmas program, and then we're going to do a little Christmas stuff, and then we're going to come right back in this for three more weeks before we head into our transition to one service. So today what we want to do is to look at the first part of the Apostles' Creed. That part being, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And look, it's, it's, a, it's an easy thing to find people who believe in God. If you ask somebody if you believe in God, most likely you're going to get the answer yes. But what about God, the Father Almighty? That seems more specific. There's weightier stuff in that. What about God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? That, now that gets really specific with certain attributes of God. And so today what I want to do is, is walk through four phrases that we find in this first part of the creed and understand their implications. So we're going to walk through what I believe. We're going to walk through I believe in God what it implies to say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and then what it means when we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And then I want to talk about this tension that is in our lives, that's in our church today, uh, the tension between decision and discipleship. We want to walk into that. So that's where we're headed. And so let's start with our first phrase, I believe it. To believe in something carries a lot more weight than to say, I think. To think something means that you just, this seems right. I think every year that the Cubs are winning the World Series, right? It's not true. I, I think it, right? To feel something is different than to believe something. To feel something means that it kind of has lived in and through your emotions. You process it there. But to believe sort of brings those two things together. It says that my head and my heart are in agreement. That this is true. This is what I believe in. I don't think it. I don't feel it. I believe it. And if we believe something, it creates a guideline or a principle in our life that serves as an anchor point, a guiding point in our life. And the reality is, is that we create all sorts of beliefs in our lives. We all believe that if we drop an object... Because of gravity, it's going to hit the ground. We believe that night follows day. We believe that the sun's going to come up in the morning. That early on in our life, we, we by trial and error, by trial and error, identify people that we believe we can trust. And it doesn't take us very long to know whether our moms and our dads are reliable people. And so the older we get, we just get these these bigger processes, these rational processes, where we kind of investigate people and institutes, and then we put various beliefs. Like, we even, I believe 
My, this brand of toothpaste is better than that brand of toothpaste. I believe that that news organization is the only news organization I'm going to listen to because everybody else is wrong. I believe in this airline, so I'm going to fly only on that airline, or even in your marriage. You believed in somebody so much that you were willing to commit yourselves to marriage. So beliefs drive our lives. And so the Apostles' Creed is this endeavor to reduce to a very basic creedal statement what I believe in God and what I don't believe in God. And the great thing for you to know is that this creed is as up-to-date today as it ever has been. We refreshed it this morning. It's completely up-to-date. But also know this, it's the same thing that Christians have been saying for generations, centuries, thousands of years Christians have been saying these words in affirmation of our faith. And so when we say, I believe, what we are doing is joining in a chorus of believers in the past. We're coming around these common expressions. Isn't that fascinating? It fascinates me. The next phrase is, I believe in God. And this is the strategic theological thought that informs all of our beliefs in God. You either believe in God or you don't. And in the study of human history, if you're going to just look at mankind, you would see that we're religious people. If you would scratch our surface, there is some sort of belief in the design, the divine, whether we refer it to God or gods or something else. Surveys still show today that most people believe in God. And so if you ask somebody if they believe in God, you're going to most likely get a yes because it's hard not to believe in God. When you look at the beauty of our creation and the order in it, when you think of the complexity and the intelligence of humankind, it just goes back to this intelligent designer, this creator. And so believing is not hard. It's evident. But listen, It's not just about believing in God. Like James, the brother of Jesus, writes in his letter in James in chapter 2, he says, you believe that God is one and you do well, but even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons believe that there is a God. Creation agrees that there is a God. The question is, is it just some sort of grand comforting thought that you hold on to, or does it have weight in your life? Do you internalize that and process it and and want to know that God personally? Because you can't say the phrase, I believe in God the Father Almighty without implying that that God is both near and personal. Jesus commends us and tells us to pray like this. He says, pray like this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Our Father... And so throughout Scripture, Jesus uses things that we can get our minds around when trying to teach us what the kingdom of God is around, about. He uses things like seeds and soils and sheep and shepherds. And for those who thirst after truth, the parables of Jesus are profound and memorable windows to understand the nature, the nature of God. But when Jesus calls God the Father, he's not talking in a metaphor. He's not talking about a metaphor like he is when he talks about seeds and soils. He's saying that God is the literal, actual Father. That he doesn't, just, he doesn't take 
from us earthly dads and look a little bit like him, or he doesn't look a little like us so we can relate to him. No, he is the father. And we who are fathers on earth have imperfectly, flawedly, revealed to our children and to the world who our Father in heaven is. He is the Father. He's the essence of fatherhood that is, that is found in this earth. He is the Father. He is our source of life. He's our source of love. He lovingly corrects us. He provides for our needs. He gives us wisdom, and he brings us back. He forgives us through Christ. He is the perfect Father. Which means when we confess that I believe that God is the Father Almighty, what we're implying and saying is that I'm His child. That I need Him. Christ says, let your faith be childlike. It's about seeing our Father in a way that my two-year-old, my five-year-old, see me as my source and my everything in my life. He is what I need. But let's get more specific in this, because the creed does. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. That would imply more than our God is just simply our Father Almighty. It would mean that he's also the all-powerful creator God. And in our scripture, it's compelled to us like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, found in Genesis. And then David writes these in, in his Psalms. He says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He says, create in me a, a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. The first identifying mark of God in Scripture is that he is a creator. He is a creator of all that is around us, all that is in us, and all that is us. And he is still creating today. He is turning our hearts of stone into a heart of flesh. He is creating new things in his creation and new desires within those who trust him. Far too often we underestimate the size and the scope and the substance of our God. He created it all to the micro levels. And so when I say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, what I am not saying is that I believe in some impersonal, unknowable, forgettable God. Or a God that I get to figure out who he is or say who he is. A God that is there only when I need him. What we are saying is that he is supreme and alpha. That he both and all, up, he, he, not, he upkeeps, he creates, he beholds and cares for his creation. He's a God that is worthy of our praise. He's a God that's worthy of our commitment. He's a God that's worthy of our affection and our devotion, our sacrifice and our submission. If he spoke and he did, we should heed his words. If he acted and he did, we should marvel at his work. And if he wrote his story and he did, we should read and know it. He is our Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And listen, there should be some fear in saying that. We don't like to talk about fear. But there should be some fear in saying that I have a God, Father Almighty, creator of the heaven and earth. A God that knows me at my micro level and knows his creation. 
There should be a little fear about how big our God is and how laughably small we are. In Proverbs 9, it says this. It says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The beginning of our wisdom, the beginning of our relationships with God come by learning from fear that He is greater, more powerful, more supreme than I am. A fear that puts me in my place and lets God be in His place. And in that we grow in our knowledge and our devotion to that sizable God. But listen, then we come to know His kindness. It is the kindness of God that brings us to redemption and repentance. Fear is the beginning. It's not the end. We come to know our good Father, our merciful God. But what has proven today to be more effectual in making conversions, or more importantly, it's more of an advantage to our enemy, is eradicating any sort of cost or any sort of fear or any sort of submission or humbling of oneself to this supremacy of God. What is far easier is to make simple equations and actions that give us the promise that we have God without ever really explaining or contending to us the scale and the magnitude of the God that we serve, without exposing to us who we truly are, why we are lacking. No, it's, it's look at what you get. You get heaven. You get love. You win. Why do I need that? Why do I need God? I've got enough money in the bank. I've got food in the pantry. I've got friends. I've got everything I need. You tell me why I need God. We don't expand on that. And so we found ourselves today as the church in tension. A tension that is probably elevated in your life. A tension between just making a decision to follow Jesus and being a disciple that follows Jesus. Today, the church has become more about getting people to make a decision than it is about creating people who become disciples of Christ. And that spits in the face of the commands that Jesus gives us in Scripture when he says, go into the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In Romans, it says this. In Romans 10, it says, but if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so we take that to mean just confess and believe, which is true, it's scripture, it's right. But for us, confessing and believe, believing means this. It's grown to being taught like this, believing that God loves me and confessing that I love him back. I believe that God loves me, and I can confess that I love him back. Believe and confess, and I win. I get heaven, I get this, I get this, I get all of it. And that's it. Make a decision. We like to create these trendy environments to feed on our emotions and say, believe and confess, and you win. You get God, you get heaven. And what we fail to notice or fail to account for is that we're confessing that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. 
If he's Lord, it implies that you're not. If he's Lord, it implies it's not about your power anymore. If he's Lord, it implies it's not about your life anymore. If he's Lord, it means it's not about your authority anymore. If he's Lord, it's not about your preference anymore. If he's Lord, it's not about your wisdom. He's Lord. If we still are about our power, about our wisdom, about our authority, about our preference, that's not a Lord. That's a pet. It's a pet. That's not, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You don't create pets from that belief. And so the question that I, with as much love in my heart as I possibly can have, is, is did we make a decision so we could get something that we want and keep what we have? Or are we becoming the type of people who recognize who God is and who I am and how great and supreme that he is and submits to him and say, I'm going to live for that. I'm going to trust in that. I'm going to devote myself to that. I'm going to internalize what I confess. Our world has taught us to teach Jesus and sell him like lemonade to make him more palatable, a more pleasing version so others might buy him. And then we get to celebrate how good we are in doing that. Jesus never taught that. I can't find one shred of scripture that Jesus ever taught that. He was always real about who he was. He was always honest to say, there's a cost to this. There's a cost to this. And it's more than you're probably willing to pay. It's more than you can expect. But it's worth it. Oh my, is it worth it. Like he is better than our chaotic lives of pursuing ourselves. He is better in sufficiency than we are. He is better than all the trinkets of the world. And so friends, might we consider today, was it about a decision for me so I can get what I want? Or is it about being a devoted disciple of a Father Almighty? creator of heaven and earth that radically changed things. Radically changed things. Not to be our pet, but to be our Lord, our Father, our creator. There are so many safeguards in understanding that belief and knowing that belief. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Sometimes in the midst of our tragedy, in the midst of our pain, there's not a whole lot of, we can hold on to. Sometimes we're desperately clinging to just some sort of hope. Might it be beneficial for us to really know what we believe? That in those moments that I can say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. That I would have something to hold to. I think so. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Do you? Do you really believe that? Because it matters. Would you pray with me? And so, Father, I just want to confess that, that I struggle in belief. I, I struggle in being discipled by a world that cares nothing for you, that tries to sabotage me, 
And so, God, I I pray for me, I pray for us in this room that you would do what you do by your Spirit, that you would break us, refine us, move us into a more complete version of you, that we in our lives would would show the fruits of your Spirit, your love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, Lord, that those things would be abundant in us, that we would die to self so that those things might live through us so that others would know your supremacy, would know you as a father, would know you as a creator. So God, we just pray and give you permission to move in our lives today. And we pray this boldly in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.